Hi everyone, and welcome to Season 2 of The Artist Statement. I'm David Malisarn. If you've been with us before, thank you very much for coming back. And if this is your first time with us, thanks for giving us a try. My guest today is Ben Ehrenreich. You know, I was in, in Palestine, the West Bank, uh, in the summer of 2014 during that war, and remember very starkly feeling like the, the sort of smooth linear flow of days had halted and it would sort of jump forward and then stop. Um, and then suddenly there'd be all these bizarre rooms inside of it and all the space inside of it, and then it would race ahead and then it um, would be completely... Aaron Reich is an award-winning journalist, essayist, and novelist who has reported from more than a dozen countries on four continents. His work has appeared in The Nation, The New York Times Magazine, The London Review of Books, and Los Angeles Magazine. He is the author of the critically acclaimed The Way to the Spring, Life and Death in Palestine, which was one of The Guardian's best books of 2016. He joins us today to talk about Desert Notebooks, a roadmap for the end of time, which recently won an American Book Award. Desert Notebooks addresses a challenge that we've all been dealing with a lot over the last couple of years, our changing perceptions of time. If you haven't complained about it recently, you've probably heard a complaint from someone around you. Days blur together. Things that seem to have taken place only a couple of months ago are actually a few years old. How has this disconnect taken place? Has time always been this steady pulse beating regardless of our interactions with it? Ehrenreich examines these questions in the larger context of civilization, drawing upon the landscapes in Joshua Tree and Las Vegas, creation myths, and the trauma of war and politics to explore how our concept of time can change. He draws on texts like the Popol Vuh and Greek and Roman mythology to reveal that the things that may have seemed permanent have constantly been evolving. And what we get on the other side is a sense of grandeur, an immensity that helps us to put everything into perspective. Ben Ehrenreich, thanks a lot for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure. How are you doing? You're in Spain, you said? Yeah, I'm in Barcelona. And I hope you're staying safe. Yeah, uh, yeah, as, as much as possible. Um, yeah, things are a little out of control here too, although yeah. I think not quite as chaotic as yeah. in the US right now. Yeah. Um, but thank you. Congratulations also for winning the American Book Award. I don't know if you pay attention to those things, but that's wonderful. You know, I mean, I, when I get it, <laughs> I pay attention. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a really nice surprise. So just to start, I'd love to hear more about how you you began how did you become a writer what inspired you you had the description of being at the dinner table and your parents talking politics all the time and and they're both writers as well right yeah um although it was it was my mom who was the writer for most of my my childhood and i think that certainly um made a huge difference um i think you know for a lot of people i know who come from families where nobody's a writer just kind of accepting that it's like a legitimate thing to do is can be an enormous hurdle and and finding the confidence to you know to claim it as yours is is a big deal and i mean i was definitely fortunate in that you know from when i was as long as i can remember um sitting alone <laughs> i don't know why i found it attractive um, but sitting alone in a, in a closed room and silence and writing um, for hours every day was like a, a you know that's what like one of the things that work looked like. Um, and, and so it made sense to me that, that this is something you could do with your life. I, you know, I think I probably resisted writing for, for quite a while in my, in my youth. And then um, eventually found that I, like I realized I was fighting it um, and that it was actually the only thing I wanted to do. And I worked enough shitty jobs when I was, you know, in my uh, early twenties that, um, I know I didn't want to do them. <laughs> um, and when I was working them, I was taking like, you know, stealing away every second I could to go somewhere and, and write. 
so uh, I at some point decided to just throw myself into it um, and and got really lucky in some ways. I mean, this was in in the 90s, um, late 90s. I moved to L.A. and um, L.A. Weekly was was still like a really vibrant paper. Um, and I was able to, in the beginning, pick up enough work, not writing, but just doing various other things, um, you know, answering phones, uh, sorting mail. Um, I ended up by the end of the, before I left there, I'd kind of done everything in that building that was possible to do and eventually started getting chances to write for them. Um, and, and that's how I got started. You're an East Coaster, right? Yeah, I grew up in New York. Yeah. I grew up in the suburbs um, on Long Island. And uh, moved to LA when I was 24, I think. And I was I was like one of those really annoying New Yorkers um, who doesn't want to be anywhere else and thinks New York is the center of the world and 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 um, you know spots every cliche about LA that's possible to spout for my first year there. Um, and then after the second year, I realized that I was in love with LA and um, didn't want to go back to New York, um, which was really <laughs> painful for me as an annoying New Yorker. Um, but but the West Coast is better. So. <laughs> well, it, it it seems like you're all over the world these days. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, if uh, my heart's in California most of the time. Desert Notebooks opens one year and six days after the election of President Donald Trump. In the opening scene, you're taking a walk with some friends through Joshua Tree National Park, and you come across some winged visitors that kind of started you on this amazing journey that would become Desert Notebooks. Uh, can you kind of set the stage for us a bit more and maybe even go back a few years to how you ended up in Joshua Tree? Sure, why don't I actually, I, I'll, I'll do that uh, latter bit first, then I can actually read the from um, those opening pages. Sure, yeah, that sounds great. Um, but yeah, I was... Um, so I'd lived in Los Angeles at that point for most of 20 years. Um, I left only to move to Palestine for um, the better part of two years and came back and LA was a harder and harder place to live in a lot of ways. Um, probably just gotten ext extremely expensive, but I think uh, it made a little less sense to me than it had um, when I moved back. And I was going to have to leave the, the house I was living in um, and um, was looking around for apartments uh, in L.A. And it was an incredibly depressing um, process, as I'm sure many listeners are, are familiar with. Um, and I knew I didn't, you know, I couldn't afford a lot of... Uh, a lot of neighborhoods. I didn't want to be a, a gentrifier in some new neighborhood. And I was out visiting um, uh, a friend um, in the desert, Joshua Tree, um, and looked on Craigslist. Uh, Craigslist was still um, functioning and, um, and found this house that was like a, a couple of miles from where he was living and was beautiful and um, was within walking distance of the national park boundary um, and cost less than it would have cost me to rent a single really crappy room um, in LA. So there was, like, there was very, very little question um, in my mind about what to do. I, at that point, I'd spent, um, uh, for years, I'd be going out to the desert for one, two months, whenever I could. Um, there'd been a, a cabin that my, my ex and I had been renting um, whenever we could afford to get away from LA. And uh, I would go out there just to write and, and, and be out there. So it's, at, you know, at that point, I'd probably already spent a year out there, all told, um, and really loved it and, and knew that it was a place I wanted to spend more time in. Well, that said, let me read here. Um, so this is, this is from the very beginning of the book. Um, and it's actually from the second page. The summer had passed. The monsoons had poured down in September, and though no rain had fallen since, the senna and brittle bush were still in bloom, smearing the sides of the wash a brilliant yellow. I don't remember what we were talking about, maybe Steve Bannon or the Lost Hikers or Roy Moore banned from the mall, or the elusive scent of the desert willows that thicketed the floor of the wash. 
when Kay, walking ahead of A and me, stopped. She pronounced a single word, owls. They took to the air in a sudden rustling burst and then went silent. I barely glimpsed the first one, a flash of wide white wings as it glided by above us, too big a thing to be so quiet. It soared off in a broad arc and disappeared behind a hill to the west. The second one, though, passed low enough that for an instant I could see its flat, tawny face, the mottled white and brown plumage of its belly, those bright alien eyes. It circled once and flew out of sight to the east. Eventually, we breathed. With all their circling and swooping, Kay thought maybe there had been three of them, but I was fairly sure there were just two. We kept walking, the wash narrowing as we went until we had to scramble over boulders to proceed. We turned to bend. The owls were there, perched on a rock. They saw us first and flew off up the canyon. Again, they separated, one arcing right, the other left. We thought that was it and picked up the conversation again. I know at some point we talked about Lebanon and Saudi Arabia, Saad Hariri's strange flight to Riyadh, Jared Kushner's visit the week before. All of that had filled me with a panic that lasted for days, the contours of the next global conflict revealing themselves, requiring only the smallest flame. Who would play the role of the Archduke this time? Who would kill him? Kay stopped again. The owls had roosted in the rocks ahead of us as if they were waiting for us there. They flew off and again we watched in silence. So it went. We scrambled on, following the canyon as it twisted left to right, expecting to see the owls at every bend. Every hundred yards or so, we cut up with them and everything we had been saying felt suddenly impertinent and we fell silent again until they flew off and then walked on until we caught up with them again. We talked more quietly now, still surveying the crises of the day, pausing to admire a paper bag bush in unlikely late autumn bloom or particularly bold and healthy choya. And then the owls shut us up again. We saw them five times in all, maybe six, before they soared off into some more distant canyon and disappeared for good. I knew that we'd been annoying them, that they were only trying to avoid us, and it's foolish, I know, but this is what humans do. We turn the world into a story and put ourselves at the center of the plot. And I found it hard not to imagine or to want to believe that they'd been leading us onward all along, that they were trying to tell us something or to show us a path, one that led deeper into the wilderness, away from the highway, away from the car. Before we said goodbye that night, in the parking lot of the town's one Indian restaurant, the conversation turned to writing. A and K are both writers. It was getting harder, we agreed, to muster any faith in any of it, to care at all about lit world battles that had once seemed so important. Or even in the face of real planetary disaster, glaciers melting, oceans rising, droughts and fires and famines and floods, to care about anything we had once confidently called literature. No matter how pointless things may have felt at any given moment, A said, you could always tell yourself that you were taking part in a conversation, an exchange that stretched back into the immeasurable past and on into a future that you couldn't yet imagine. That was the conceit. No progress, but continuity at least. You could tell yourself that it was the conversation that mattered, the stream of voices flowing through the centuries, this ancient, almost sacred thing that is bigger and deeper than any of us alone. But what if it's going to end soon? What if someone in a generation, perhaps two, will write the very last word? What if the future does not include enough human beings to keep the conversation going? What if it drifts off like a party at the end of the night with only a few drunks left mumbling in the corners? What if the humans who remain are too busy surviving to tend to the books and the servers? What if literacy has a horizon and it's near? Isn't it all just noise then? I should add that we were laughing or smiling at least, we were still high from the walk and it felt good to say these things aloud. The astounding vanity of it, I added, had never felt clearer this hope that someone in a hundred years would hear you, that you might be able to give that person something. Just like all the times you had been lifted and redeemed by the whispers of the dead rustling through the pages of books. How painful and absurd, this fantasy that your own labors might in turn be redeemed by strangers centuries and perhaps continents away who would need to hear what you had to whisper. This delusion that you were doing anything other than babbling because you like the sound it makes, like a child blowing bubbles into milk. But without those strangers waiting for you, 
what is the point? Even if the New York Times loves you and everyone reads your books today and tomorrow and even next summer, what is any of it worth? Gossip squeaked between lemmings racing for the cliff. Why bother to write when there'll be no one left to read? Really, I mean it when I say that we were smiling. We were talking about the end of time and increasingly probable destruction of everything we knew and loved. We didn't relish any of it, but in the context of the walk we had just taken, time took a different shape. The desert enforces its own perspective. It shrinks you and puts eternity in the foreground. If you're open to it and don't mind a diminished role in this drama, it insists quietly on the surging beauty of all things and non-things living and dead and not formally alive. Thank you very much. It's such a beautiful opening scene and it is starting to pull together some of the threads that this book talks about. Um, and I should say the the subtitle of this book uh, is A Roadmap for the End of Time. Time becomes a central theme in this book. You argue that there are different ways of experiencing time. You had a line in your book that I, I just thought was so moving. Um, what if time, as we understand it, this infinitely segmentable line stretching from unseeable past to unforeseeable future is not an arrow, but a scar. Can you talk a little bit more about the, the different perspectives of time that you discuss in this book? Sure. Um, I mean, I guess this is something I've been thinking about for, for a long time, if not if not this directly, it's really hard not to use the word time. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm conscious of it. Um, but, um, and, you know, time is a social construct, right? I, I, like different cultures have different, different notions of time and ours is really strange. It's a product of the enlightenment. Uh, you know, I think it, 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 you, you, Kind of get its first and most explicit articulations in in, in Newton, who imagines time as the sort of empty vector um, that would go on eternally, um, whether we're here or not. You know, it's not something that's embodied at all. It's completely independent of us, um, and it, it it's a our notion of time. I think is, is fundamentally a um, a figure of capitalism. Um, you know, the people live time in various embodied ways um, that more or less ended in, in Europe and in most of North America um, in the 19th century as people had to adjust to clock time so that they could work um, in factories and, and in offices um, where their labor was measured not by the task, um, but by the amount of time they spent there. Um, so, so, you know, once we began selling our time and time became something absolutely, completely abstract. Um, and this is the, you know, this is the, the notion of time that, that we still live with. It's this completely empty thing um, that moves sort of independently of us. We're, we're constantly trying to run to catch up with it. There's never enough time. We're trying to stuff things into the time that we have. Um, we're oppressed by time. Um, you know, our phones are constantly ticking it away. Um, we, we can never get away from it. It's um, also a notion of time that this last, these last two years in particular have proven, have shown so many of us that like this, this is ridiculous and, and this, this is completely constructed, right? Because as soon as the pandemic hit and the rituals that formed so much of our social life um, of work, of, of, of travel, of, uh, you know, the, the things that structure our days, um, you know, in terms of social interactions of various kinds, once they fell apart, our notions of time fell apart too. Um, and people talk about this less now, but it was something people talked about a ton in those early months of the pandemic, um, was people feeling like time itself had just, had just collapsed, um, had, you know, had, had sort of, turned to dust on us. Um, and because none of the things that we use to measure it, which happened to be these, these, you know, um, uh, the social networks in, in which we live, um, all of that had changed. So time itself shifted. And this is something I had experienced before, um, you know, 
outside of the U.S. living and working um, as a journalist in places where the social structure was being torn apart by conflict in one way or another. I talk about this a little bit in the book. Um, you know, I was in, in um, Palestine, in the West Bank, uh, in the summer of 2014 during that war, um, and remember very starkly feeling like the, the sort of smooth linear flow of days had halted um, and um, it would sort of jump forward and then stop. Um, and then suddenly there'd be all these bizarre rooms inside of it and all the space inside of it. And then it would race ahead and, and um, be completely constricting and it would spiral out and then it would move again um, because the, you know, with violence, um, with, with uh, in that case, military violence, the, um, the smooth flow of days had stopped. And I, and I think anybody who's in their life has experienced like any kind of trauma um, experiences this in the ways that trauma, you know, whether it's something, um, whether it's a, a breakup or a car accident or, or some more severe, uh, form of violence, um, it tears you out of the social routines, the structure of your days and time itself sort of collapses on you. Um, and, and part of what we kind of understand as, as recovering from trauma means reinserting yourself into the smooth flow of time again. Um, um, but, you, you know, a lot, I think most of us, once you reach a certain point in your life, can look back at these sort of parentheses when, when time didn't really function. Once you, you step outside of, of our, you know, um, modern Western capitalist notion of time, uh, the world really opens up. Um, and so one of the things I do in the book is, is, is try to look to um, a number of other cultures, uh, whether some of them are Native American, some of them are, um, you know, pre-modern European cultures, um, some of them are uh, from the ancient Near East, um, and to try to think about other ways that people have conceived of time. Um, and, for, you know, for me, the, you know, in writing this book, the two things that kind of really got me thinking about it all the time, there it goes again, um, were... You know, one of one of these things that like pre-pandemic that was uh, pretty dizzying. Uh, it's hard to remember now. It feels like twenty years ago. Um, were those early days of the Trump administration, um, and it was just you know it, it was our political life like shifted. Now we're back in sort of like Biden Xanax mode, even if everything like things are falling apart, but we're all kind of like right. Um, but in those days, it was just whiplash, minute by minute. You know. Um, if the news cycle usually, if we were used to a sort of news story hitting the news that everyone was talking about every three or four or five days, suddenly, like, you know, there was something dropping every every 30 minutes when that dude would hit Twitter and, um, you know, try to start a war with North Korea over here and, blah, 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 and you know, and, um, and time itself, again, seemed to shift. Um, and at the same time, I had just moved to the desert where, in addition to being aware of this, like, sort of radically altered political time that we were all stuck in, um, I was also um, getting in tune with a different kind of geological kind of time, um, an astronomical kind of time. I was learning about the stars. I was spending a lot of time staring at the stars. I was spending a lot of time out in the landscape, um, trying to understand the very deep kinds of time that had shaped the landscape and are still shaping it. Um, and and observing very closely the changes of the of the seasons. Uh, so once I was thrown into the, the kind of cyclical time um, of the seasons changing and of the stars and the sort of like you know absolutely enormous um, sort of depths of geological time, and trying to hold all these things together in my mind at the same time. Um, and that's that's what the book came out of. And you going into the ancient civilizations that you explored. Um, you do discuss that there were cultures that viewed time as cyclical and then that the concept of linear time sort of emerged as part of this um, false assumption that things are constantly improving. We tend to talk about uh, other cultures having things that we talk about as being like creation myths right, or, or, or various mythologies. And um, and some of them seem quite outlandish to our you know uh, rational technological um, selves, um, 
And what struck me as like really outlandish uh, was the myth that structures our own sense of um, of ourselves and of history, right? And how absolutely basic to our understandings of history and hence of time. Um, and when I say our, I mean, uh, forgive me, this is a, a lazy um, thing I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, basically uh, white European North American culture um, in the last couple centuries. Um, but, um, and that's progress, right? The, the, this notion that time, is, that we are going somewhere um, and it's getting better. Um, and th this is a notion that even like in the last two years seems far more absurd than it did, you know, two years ago, right? Because things are really kind of falling apart and it's, it's kind of, it's hard to hold on um, with uh, any seriousness to this idea that, um, that uh, somehow um, the geniuses of the Enlightenment set Western civilization um, on this upward track while the rest of the world kind of wallowed in primitivism. Um, and, and the West was going to, you know, um, with the help of science and technology, was going to um, improve everyone's lives. And, you know, there's still, obviously, there are still people, uh, a lot of people who believe this. Um, and um, there are still intellectuals who are taken very seriously um, who um, spout this as an almost religious matter. I'm thinking of people like Steven Pinker, you know, um, but, but this, this is still, I think, fundamental to a certain kind of establishment ideology um, in the US and, and much of the world even, uh, not just Europe and the US at this point. Um, and I, I think uh, certainly the climate crisis, um, you know, if nothing else, threw this into question and there's always been plenty um, of reason to throw this into question because I think it was a, um, a racist and white supremacist ideology from the very beginning. And I talk about that in some in, you know, considerable depth in the book. Um, but uh, even if you could somehow ignore that, um, the fact that uh, progress such as it is has been pushing us um, closer and closer to the end, edge of a cliff um, is becoming harder and harder to deny. So part of what you're looking at here along with time is you're uncovering stories of some of the mythological characters that we have been familiar with, like Athena, the goddess Athena, um, and you kind of trace her back through history, maybe to other forms and how, how she became the figure that she became in Greek mythology. Yeah, I mean, what led me to Athena was the owl, yeah. right? In the, in the, in the, like, it starts with those owls. And um, my friend Anthony, who appears in the book as A, um, while we were out there, mentioned the owls in the Popol Vuh, um, the, the sort of, um, great Mayan text. And I went back and read that and started thinking about those owls. And those owls are the guardians of the underworld. And, and, um, and um, then remembered, uh, you know, this line from Hegel, um, which is the owl of Minerva flies only at night. Um, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, Minerva, of course, is Athena. Um, and by this, you know, what Hegel means is that, um, is that history is, um, we can't really understand it as it's, as it's happening. It's only, uh, it's only in the daylight that the Really, the philosopher can look back and, and, and understand its logic. Um, but so through that, um, Athena becomes um, sort of placed as this goddess who is close to, to history and it's, it's unrolling. Um, so I started thinking about that and reading more and more about her and she starts appearing everywhere. Um, and I mean, the book, you know, um, as you, as you mentioned, like it's all over the place, right? It, it jumps around from culture to culture and, and um, era to era. And, um, you know, from philosophers like Hegel to uh, um, novelists like Ursula Le Guin or, or um, you know, short story writers like, like Borges um, to revolutionaries to, you know, it, it's just, um, and it really came together in a strangely natural way. Um, I mean, I was uh, sort of gave myself permission to just keep making connections and seeing where everything led me um, and to go down whatever like weird intellectual um, avenue opened up before me, um, which was uh, was like really exciting and fun. Um, 
and um, something I'd never like fully allowed myself to do as a writer before. Um, so I'm not really, I don't know if I'm answering your question about Athena, uh, but uh, she comes back again and again um, in the book. Um, somehow she led me to Lilith, uh, you know, who's this um, figure who um, appears in the earliest um, sort of Mesopotamian um, mythology and appears in the, in the Old Testament and in the, um, you know, in uh, later in, in books of, of Jewish mysticism and, and takes on sort of a, a change in meaning throughout over the centuries. Um, and, uh, and then is sort of brought back to life in the 19th century um, by Goethe and later by the, by the pre-Raphaelites. Um, and, and of course in the 1990s was brought back by, um, by feminist singer-songwriters. One of the things that you just touched on was um, you said you were giving yourself permission to kind of let this uh, research go wherever it was going to go and make the connections happen. You're calling it Desert Notebooks. It does unfold like a journal where we follow your your movement from Joshua Tree to Las Vegas, but also in different chapters, you're kind of waking up to the news of the day, right? Um, and so it, it very much lets us as a reader kind of experience that time with you and for me it helped me remember how i experienced that those years um so can you talk about how you found a structure for the book as you know you're you're kind of waking up every day and experiencing this but you're also doing a lot of research and digging into these um ancient mythical texts how did that all come together for you i mean i was very lucky and i think one of the reasons that um uh that I was able to give myself permission to, to work in this slightly insane way um, was that I got, I got this great fellowship from the Black Mountain Institute in, in, in Las Vegas. Um, so I, I, you know, I didn't have to worry about making a living in any other way. I could just focus entirely on this project, um, which, you know, as all writers uh, know, is, is like extremely rare and wonderful thing. Um, so I think that freed me up, not just in terms of um, subject matter, right? Um, not just in terms of feeling like I could jump um, from one thing to the next and just sort of follow my interests and see where they took me. Um, well, the interest is not, I, I think there was an obsessive character to this research that I shouldn't um, <laughs> underplay. Um, I was pretty driven by it. Um, but it also, I think, freed me up formally um, that um and allowed me to think um about kinds of structure that i might not um have thought about it if i had been under different kinds of pressure um and it was important to me that if if this book was meant to not just question but really kind of take apart um our assumptions about um linear time and the narratives that we use to, to reinforce um, that notion of time, then it couldn't be a strictly linear narrative. Um, and it couldn't just have a single thread that develops over the course of um, you know, 75,000 words or, or um, in the way that most books of nonfiction are, are supposed to. Um, that instead it was going to have to um, find its own shape. Um, so, that was not always easy. Um, I mean, I sort of knew as I was going um, that certain things made sense together. Um, there's a lot that I was researching and, and writing that didn't make it into the final version. Um, but uh, um, you know, I was writing the I was writing these bits piece by piece. I wasn't writing it as a single um, long scroll on Microsoft Word. Um, but I was writing um, these separate bits. And for a while in my office in at UNLV, um, I, had, I had taped up little, I'd made little index cards of each little bit and I taped up a whole wall and I was moving them around like a maniac and trying to figure out, you know, what the threads were and, um, you know, how I could establish certain rhythms by coming back to the different threads and, and weaving them together. Um, and that was the, in many ways, that was the, the real work of the book was um, once I had written everything, 
um, figuring out what made sense to keep and what kind of order to put it in um, so that I could develop some kind of rhythms and momentum that did not rely on a linear succession of events and the kind of suspense that that naturally creates for readers. Um, so that was the, like, that was the trick. And what was your mindset? Like there are so many moments in this book that are very quiet and reflective moments. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking of definitely the desert walks and the Las Vegas runs, but also your thoughts of the mattress that's on the other side of the fence in your, where you were staying in Las Vegas. Um, were there, were there a lot of quiet moments during this time for you or um, was, was there a sense of urgency or both? Both, I think. Um, I think there was a pretty powerful sense of urgency. I felt, I, I mean, in writing this book, I felt pretty, pretty driven. Um, it, you know, it, it was um, in many ways like a really wonderful period. And I, I, I'm sure I'll look back on it like that for the rest of my life. It, like, it felt like a gift to be, to be taken over by a project the way I was taken over by this for, you know, it sort of picked me up um, in when I started writing it um, in, you know, late in 2016, um, actually 2017, I'm sorry. And, uh, um, and then eventually it dropped me, you know, like when I was done, I was done. Um, like I followed all the, you know, I followed all the paths um, and then I just had to figure out how to weave them together. Um, but, uh, but I was, you know, there was no, there was no forcing it once it was done. And so in some way, when I think back, I don't think of it, there are certainly quiet times, um, but the desert isn't even, even the sort of, uh, you know, where I was living in Joshua Tree, which was fairly isolated. You know, I wouldn't see a lot of other humans most of the time. Um, didn't feel quiet. Um, if once you sort of become attuned to the noises the desert makes and to the amount of life there is out there, you realize that it's just swarming. Um, and so one of the things that was actually really important to me in, in the book was to sort of get some sense of that sort of swarming abundance that even and especially the places that we think of as barren, um, you know, are possessed with um, into the book. Um, and then of course, you know, so I moved to Las Vegas and it, like, I won't be giving much away if I said I didn't really like Las Vegas. Um, and I lived in downtown Vegas. There's a lot of wonderful people in Vegas, but, um, but, uh, and a lot of them really like it. And, um, and a lot of them probably don't like this book and, and I guess that's okay. <laughs> but I was in downtown Las Vegas, which is a, a harsh, harsh place. It's not the Vegas of the Strip. It's a Vegas that's of lots of abandoned homes and lots of, uh, you know, most of the people you encounter on the street are living on the street or they're cops who are chasing around the people who are living on the street. So those realities are, are very hard to take your eyes from and to, to evade if you are at all sensitive to them. Um, and um, so, yeah, life there was also you know, it, it was a, a lot of the streets were quiet and, and, and empty most of the time, but they were also swarming with life and swarming with desperation and swarming with, um, with violence. Um, and I tried to get some of that across as well. And you eventually do connect this idea that uh, Joshua Tree and Vegas are the same desert in a way, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think I like it, you know, it was tempting for the, and, and I certainly for the first couple months that I was in, in Las Vegas was thinking, you know, oh, this is this horrible uh, imposition on the land. Um, you know, there is this pure desert and this place is, uh, um, is somehow violating it. But no, I think, yeah, the important thing to, for me to understand and grapple with was that, no, these are, this is all the same reality. Um, and uh, the same forces are, are pushing through through both places. Yeah. The New York Times book review called this book a, a potent memorial to our own ongoing end times, and I do think that's really accurate. Uh, what has been the reception of, of this book among 
I don't know, your peers, your, your fans? <laughs> um, it's been great. I mean, I, like, you know, most of the time that I was writing the book and certainly when I was editing it, um, I was definitely concerned that I had lost my mind, <laughs> that no one was going to want to publish it, um, that, uh, you know, that anybody who read it would just think I was like, had completely, you know, lost, lost track. Um, and, uh, it's been, uh, reassuring, um, that people for the most part have been into it. Um, and that I think it resonated with, with, with a lot of people, at least the ones who've, who've talked to me about it. Um, and with their own sort of sense of um, how painful and disjointed these times are, but also how much, um, you know, how much beauty and, and love there is in, you know, in sort of every speck of dust of this world um, that we have to uh, keep our focus on as well. Was it hard for you to get the book published? So it's published through Counterpoint. Um, did they see your vision right away? Yeah, Counterpoint, uh, my editor there, Dan Smetanka, was super supportive from the start. Um, and, and really, like, uh, his editing was really, was really wonderful. He had a very light touch, but he said, um, you know, we got together in, uh, in uh, near Third and Fairfax, near their offices in LA and had breakfast and he didn't say much about the book but he said it's not finished um you're not done and at this point i'd only written um the part that appears in the book now is an epilogue um which is a you know fairly short chapter um where i go back to the desert after having been away for um a little more than a year um that hadn't been written yet um and at first I was like, oh man, he thinks I'm done. What am I going to do? Um, and, and he was totally right. Um, and, and now I think the book is finished. It wasn't finished then. I didn't know it. Um, but yeah, no, they've been great um, and, and really supportive. I'm going to try. Um, so I'm kind of toying around with doing a segment at the end of every episode where I ask everyone the same question. So do you mind playing along and just kind of seeing where this sure. goes? Um, What's a word in your vocabulary that you're using more than usual these days? That's a good question. I know there are some, but I actually feel like uh, more than using a word more in a way that I'm conscious of these days, I'm more conscious of, <laughs> of like the holes in my brains where I can't find the words that I need, um, which I think may be a, a common problem this particular moment in time i think i may have to answer your question that's that a great answer and and it's definitely something i'm experiencing too what lesson have you recently learned or relearned about the writing craft you know i i think the one that um that you never stop learning and that most of us are fated to, to learn again and again is, is, I mean, what I alluded to earlier that, um, you know, your, your biggest enemy is, is your own, your own doubts. Um, and, uh, and silencing, um, those, if not silencing, figuring out how to come to, uh, some arrangement, some peaceful settlement, um, with the parts of your head that are always screaming, like, like this is too crazy. This is this is uh, you know this is stupid. This is foolish. You're the only one who's going to be interested in this, et cetera, et cetera. Um, which uh, I think it's actually it's like when I don't hear those voices that I'm kind of more worried. Um, you know, when when you're too complacent um, about what you have to say, um, that uh, that you're really in danger. Um, but of course, the the you know when those voices get too loud, it's paralyzing. Um, so finding some way to um, to wrestle them into, if not submission, at least like, you know, peace <laughs> um, is a sort of never ending part of the writing process, I think. 
All right, the last question. What's a book not written by you that you would recommend to our listeners? Oh, absolutely. Um, can I give you two? Sure. Um, uh, very different books. One is um, Amitav Ghosh, who, who probably most listeners know as a novelist, just this year published a extraordinary book called The Nutmeg's Curse, um, which is about many of the same things that I've been obsessed with recently, which is sort of the intersections of um, climate change and, and I think the overall like ecological cliff that we're, we're flying over um, and colonialism um, and the histories of colonialism and how those histories um, were motivated by and led to the dominance of a way of thinking about the non-human world as if it's dead, um, as if it's um, lacking in, in spirit and life and as if human beings are the only sort of forces out there, not just human beings, but really, I mean, uh, white European male human beings are the only ones with, not just with rationality, but with, with consciousness. Um, and of course, this, this kind of thinking has, has driven um, more than a couple of genocides, um, but also I think is, is key to uh, understanding the ecological disasters that we're in the middle of now. And I, I don't, I can't think of a, a sort of better guide um, to unraveling um, these issues uh, than Gauche's. Um, and he draws from an extraordinary you know, variety of sources, um, historical, literary, philosophical, et cetera, um, and really covers the amazing ground. Um, so I, I would absolutely highly, highly recommend that to anyone who's um, trying to understand uh, these times and the world we live in and, and why things are as, um, as shitty as they are. <laughs> um, and then I want to, you know, uh, I want to recommend a, a novel I, ju I just um, finished, which was a uh, um, very different, couldn't be more different, um, but really wonderful. Um, uh, Rabi Al-Madin's The Hakawadi. Um, Hakawadi is a, um, a traditional storyteller in um, uh, the Levant and in, in Turkey as well, um, you know, who publicly tell stories. Um, and uh, one of the characters in the book is a, is a Hakawadi, um, but it's a book about people telling stories um, as these like, extraordinarily interwoven narratives. Um, I think there's sort of three basic narratives that are jumping against each other at all times. Um, you know, one set in, I guess it was, you know, uh, would have been 1990s Beirut, um, one in a sort of mythical past, um, completely mythical past. Um, and maybe two of them in mythical pasts. Um, but, then, but then within these stories, people are always telling stories. Um, so the stories are always pausing for more stories to be told. And sometimes in those stories, people are also pausing to tell stories. Um, and so it's this, you know, this absolute sort of Russian doll of, uh, um, of narrative. Um, and it uh, it's, um, was, was really inspiring when you, know, you lose hope sometimes about what you know, what, uh, what prose can do, what narrative can do, um, and what kind of pleasures and, and joys it can provide. Um, uh, this, this helped. Um, thank you. Those are wonderful. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about maybe that you haven't had a chance to say in other interviews or at other times? Oh man. Um, <laughs> um you give me too much freedom. <laughs> I'm going to get myself in trouble. Um, one of the things um, that I was hoping to do in Desert Notebooks, which kind of feels all the more important now, you know, one of the, the things about this, uh, this linear notion of time that we discussed is that you're alone in it, right? You're on your own, like there's an arrow shot off into the future and you're, you're it, you're following that path, right? Um, and it's a, a notion of time that really isolates us from one, from one another um, and in ways that I think are really dangerous um, and isolates us not only from one another, but from, uh, you know, other living things um, that are not human. 
Um, I hesitate to use the word nature because I that implies a separation that I don't want to give it. Um, and I think you know if we learn something, uh, it really feels naive at this point to hope that we're going to learn something from this pandemic. But um, um, if we're going to learn something from it and from the sort of collapse of our of our senses of self and our senses of, of conventional senses of time that came along with it. Um, is that we're not alone at all. You know, I mean, we, we just had our, our world shaken up by a, um, a virus um, that changed everything. Um, and um, our lives are intensely interconnected. Um, and the only way that we can move forward uh, with any hope, not just of survival, but of, of, a, of a survival that's, that's, that's meaningful and desirable, um, is if we open ourselves to that connectedness um, and to the to our own smallness in the in these larger webs that we that we take part in. Um, so if I can, you know, if I can preach for a little bit, that would be my. Um, I think the message that in this book and in, in the other things I've been writing over the last few years that I would want to that I would hope resonates with 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 people who are reading. Ben, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, David. It's really been a pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode of The Artist Statement, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. We thank you so much for listening. Music for The Artist Statement was produced by Joe Rivers. Artwork by Ayumi Takahashi. The Artist Statement is brought to you by the Granham Foundation, which strives to identify and invest in the next generation of path-breaking writers. Visit us at granumfoundation.org, G-R-A-N-U-M foundation.org.